0: encouraging to think it's never too late to ask for guidance <laughs> and wisdom. You all keep praying. Feel free. It, it really is, even though it makes me nervous, it is a thrill to have the opportunity to be up here and lecture again. But I had to think, why would Karen give me this lecture? 204 skins and a nude prophet? What was she thinking? She knows I always like to do a skit. And she isn't even here. I don't know if she, she's here. She couldn't bear to watch. Is she here? Maybe I'm just going to get away with something. If she's here, she's... Oh, she's staring at me with beady eyes from the back. <laughs> oh, well, let's get started and see what happens. <laughs> it would take her a long time to come all the way up here and yank the mic away from me anyway. All right. Um. I kind of made an outline of what we're going to look at today. I don't usually like to go verse by verse. I chose six different topics for us to take a look at. The first one is jealousy. The second is the friendship of Jonathan and David. The third one is lying. The fourth one, Jonathan's wise words. The fifth one, the nude prophet. And the last one, the psalm. We'll begin with jealousy. Initially humble when Samuel anointed him, Saul quickly became accustomed to the affection of the people. He sought their approval and their attention. So attention arises in chapter 18, verse 6, when David returns from killing Goliath. There's a public celebration, much like a ticker tape parade today after a World Series win, and the Yankees' victory. The women from all the towns come to meet David and Saul. Saul evidently accompanied this band of men returning home. He was the king, the commander-in-chief, and now he's sharing in this joyful celebration. The women come singing and dancing with joyful songs, with tambourines and lutes. Karen always hates it when I sing, so I won't sing. But uh, the women are pleased that Goliath has been killed, but they're even more thrilled that their husbands, their sons, and their brothers have returned home safe and sound. And they sing, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed 10,000. Verse 8, this infuriated Saul. After all, wasn't he the king, the leader of the land? perhaps he listened again and thought, what an irritating song. What a catchy tune. Saul hated it. Angrily, he thought, now what more can David have but the kingdom? Back to our Tigger tape parade illustration. This would be like George Steinbrenner riding in the convertible in New York City at the front of the parade and thinking, you know, not many people are calling my name. I hear a lot more people cheering for Joe Torre or Derek Jeter. I think I better have them killed. <laughs> you may chuckle, but that's how Saul was feeling. He was too jealous to appreciate their help, his or David's help. But in truth, both Saul and the women missed the point, a point that David was fully aware of. The victory was not David's, but the Lord's. From that day on, Saul looked at David with suspicion. And some versions say, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The dictionary defines jealousy as resentfully suspicious of a rival or a rival's influence. There was a question in today's lesson about jealousy among Christians. You don't think there's any examples of jealousy in the church today, do you? Well, I do. In fact... I see I look a little messy and a bit out of place right now. You see, I just got back from the homeless shelter where I peeled 100 pounds of potatoes for their dinner tonight. They're always so happy to see me because I'm such a big help to them. And on the way home, I stopped at Publix to get a few groceries. I'm going to do some baking for the shut-ins that I visit. I always like to bring a homemade pie or some marmalade from my own orange tree. (sighs) Brats. Look at my heel. I must have got it scuffed up as I was running around today. Oh, well, I suppose we have to suffer for the Lord. <laughs> at least I didn't break a nail, those fill ins are so expensive. <sighs> mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the finest Christian of them all? Well, it
1: isn't you, Barbara Avery. It could be Dot
0: Morris. Dot Morris! That Morris, that little squeak. <laughs> what does she do that's so great? I never see her running around town doing all the stuff that I do.
1: Well, she prays for her missionaries daily. She takes care of the nursery supplies and makes sure they're never out of disposable diapers or trash bags. She was the one who straightened out the storage room in the Sunday school department. And she often has newcomers over for dinner. And as well, she rings the bell at Bible study.
0: Big whoop.
1: <laughs> oh, and when her neighbor's car broke down, she lent them hers for a few days.
0: But her car's only a beat-up old minivan, and and I drive a Lexus. That doesn't matter. But what about all the good stuff I do?
1: It's not just what you do; it's why you do it.
0: Oh, what do you know? You're only a mirror. Anyway, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 12.20, he said that when he returned to them, he was fearful that he might find jealousy, quarreling, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. Jealousy in churches is nothing new, but it is something to guard against because it's detrimental to the health of the church. The dictionary, however, does have another definition for jealousy. Though in this case, it's noted that it's now rare. This definition is requiring exclusive loyalty, as in the, um, the Lord is a jealous God. And the Ten Commandments, God commanded that his children not make or worship idols. He said, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. We must be faithful to God and serve him alone. God wants our love, and he wants us to serve him wholeheartedly. In fact, such an interesting verse in the Old Testament is Exodus thirty-four, fourteen: Do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a Jealous God. The next thing I'd like to look at is the friendship of Jonathan and David. I'm always so swift with overheads. If they start flying every way, I'll ask someone to come up here and help me with it. I'll get to that in just a minute. Um, This is one of the most well-known friendships of all times. At first, it seems that these two are opposites, Jonathan the Prince and David the shepherd. But as we look closer, we see that these two are so much alike. They're almost like two peas in a pod. And I really had fun looking at the chapters and seeing how much alike they were. And I found out a lot. There's a lot more information given about Jonathan than I was aware of before. So let's take a minute. The first thing that I noted was that they were both warriors. Now, obviously, anybody who is sent out to get 100 foreskins and comes back with 200, that's a warrior. That couldn't have been an easy battle. And also we know that Jonathan was a warrior. He went out and led um, the army. They were both mentioned as commanders. They both had charge of 1,000 men. They both had the same view of the enemy. They called the Philistines just the uncircumcised. They were undaunted by obstacles. Um, David was not hindered by Goliath's height or weapons or strength. And Jonathan was willing to attack 20 Philistines, remember that, with only his servant. They both relied on God as their source of strength. They were both very brave. They were both obedient and submissive. though he killed Goliath David was willing to return to Saul's service as his everyday musician instead of going around getting giving autographs all around Israel and i thought Jonathan was very humble excuse me very obedient and submissive to his father and we're going to explore that a little more fully in a minute they were both loved by the people remember when Saul made that rash oath it was Saul's own men that rushed to uh, to Jonathan's defense and kept Saul from killing him. They were both very responsible. They were both wise. It's noted repeatedly in the verses that David was very wise, and I think Jonathan was exceedingly wise in the way he dealt with his father. They were both humble. They were both the object of Saul's jealousy, I think. We, We certainly know that Saul was jealous of David But when I looked back at chapter 13, verses 3 and 4, where Jonathan had attacked the Philistines, remember it was reported to all of Israel that Saul had attacked the Philistines, so I think his father tried to take some of his credit also. They were both the object of Saul's wrath. Um, We see David having Saul's spear thrown at him, and you'll see this coming up in the next chapter with Jonathan also. And also, David, we certainly know, was an object of Saul's violence, and we're going to see that uh, in a future lesson for Jonathan. They both awaited God's direction. God gave them both victory, and obviously they were both part of Saul's household, Jonathan as his son, and David came into the household as a musician. So they would have spent a lot of time together in their growing up years. And I just thought it was fascinating how similar they were, how many um, personality and character traits they had in common. The friendship which began in these chapters lasted their whole lives, as shown in David's lament after Jonathan's death in Second Samuel 1. Their friendship would be tested, but it matured and grew and was a real source of comfort and strength to both of them. And I think David must have felt humble indeed, think that God had anointed him to be the next king instead of his best friend and beloved Jonathan. The next section, liar, liar, pants on fire. Did you ever say that when you were a kid? Are there ever times when it's okay to lie? In chapter 19, Michael lied to save her husband's life. This was an ethical emergency, a matter of life or death. Michael felt she had no other option to save David. So she deceived her father and saved his life. Wouldn't we, too, lie to save another's life? Now, each of us could probably give an example of a hypothetical situation in which it would be necessary to lie to save someone's life. But it would be most unlikely that any one of us here could give an example from our own personal experience to illustrate that life-or-death dilemma. Our lies fall far short of that justification. You younger moms, when you are not home, have your children ever been instructed to tell callers that you are in the shower when you're really not there at all? There are many reasons why we choose to lie, maybe to protect a friend, to escape punishment, to conceal our own sin, to avoid humiliation, to be respected or honored, to appear better than we are, or to please someone else. We seem to believe that little white lies are harmless, and we often have no qualms about telling them regularly instead of speaking truthfully. Let's eavesdrop on two friends to determine how much they value the truth. A tone will sound should either of them tell a lie, and that unlikely event, should that occur, they would be forced to say what they really think, rather than letting the lie go unchallenged. Oh, hi, Mary. Sorry I'm late. I was stuck in traffic. Oh, I was watching Oprah, and I lost track of the time. <laughs>
1: oh, that's Okay. You know your chronic tardiness drives me nuts.
0: Have you decided what you want to eat yet?
1: No, I haven't looked at the menu yet. I spent so much time looking at the menu, I think I can recite it.
0: (sighs) Mm, I think I'll try the chicken salad. That looks good. Oh, It's the cheapest thing on the menu, and I don't have much cash with me.
1: (laughs) You know, that sounds good to me, too. Mm. I really want a burger and fries, but I'm trying to lose a couple of pounds before the reunion.
0: <laughs> um, how are things with Mike? Fine.
1: He's busy at work with a big project. I really don't know. He's spending so much time on the job, I hardly ever see him. How's Joe's new job coming along? Never. Disregard <laughs> that tone.
0: <laughs> Joe's job? Oh, super. Super. The job is a terrific opportunity for him, an opportunity to experience unemployment benefits firsthand. He can't get along with his new boss, and I'm afraid he'll be let go, and then what will we do?
1: What are your kids up
0: to? Oh, they're growing so fast. They're not growing fast enough. (laughs) I hope they get out of the house before I lose my mind. How's Bible study going? Are you still doing that on Tuesdays?
1: Oh, yeah. I'm always at Bible study each week. What's it like? It's a great study. You just have to watch the leaders. They're (laughs) a little problem.
0: (laughs) Oh, look at the time. I'm dying to get out of here.
1: (gasps) I've got to run myself. It was great to see you again. I can't wait to get to the mall. Oh, goodbye. (laughs)
0: Although little white lies are acceptable in our society, they are not healthy spiritually. They lead us into a kind of uncritical acceptance of all kinds of dishonesty. The Bible reported Michael's lies. That does not mean that God approved of them. It just means that they were recorded. The Bible, God's word is truth. And the Bible pictures the men and women of the Bible, warts and all. God, our Father, cannot lie, but Satan is the father of lies. And we must never foolishly suppose that we need to lie in order to help God accomplish his will in our lives. So we must be careful, then, with our words. We must seek to reveal God in his character, in our speech. The next section is on Jonathan's wise words. Um, I'm going to take a look at just two verses in 19, verses 4 and 5. I'm going to take a minute to read them because I think there are some wonderful principles in there that we can use. Then Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Do not let the king sin against David, his servant, since he has not sinned against you, and since his deeds have been very beneficial to you. For he took his life in his hand. And struck the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against this innocent blood by putting David to death without a cause? organized this in two columns a negative first and then which Jonathan did not use and then a positive because I was so impressed with the way he handled this the first thing is he did not gang up on Saul with a bunch of David's supporters instead he approached Saul privately one on one Secondly, it wasn't an emotional, threatening confrontation. Instead, the atmosphere of the discussion was very calm and quiet. Jonathan did not attack his father's character. Instead, he showed respect for Saul and even called him king. He did not refer to David as Saul's enemy, but characterized David as Saul's servant i was impressed with this he did not hesitate to address the spiritual dimension and he reminded david of his excuse me he reminded saul of his accountability to god when he said do not sin it's very hard for us to confront people that we love with problems in their lives and we might really feel very uncomfortable using the word sin but if we're willing to To confront them, it could be very helpful to them to remind them that this is a sin. It's something that affects the relationship with God. I also like that he did not dramatize nor diminish the matter. Sometimes when we're talking to someone about something, I either blow it up or just make light of it. But Jonathan really relied on the facts. Jonathan did not base his arguments, on feelings. Instead, he defended David's specific behaviors. He did not focus on Saul's perception of David as a threat. Instead, he reminded Saul of all the ways that David had been beneficial to him. He could have criticized Saul for his own fear of Goliath. But instead, he just chose to commend David's faith and bravery. He did not paint David as an invincible hero. Instead, he gave God the credit for delivering Israel through David. Jonathan did not explain that this was a private matter between David and and Saul only. Instead, he explained that David helped all of Israel. Jonathan did not fan the flames of Saul's jealousy... Instead, he reinforced Saul's prior appreciation for David. He did not imply that as king, Saul would be above the law, but instead stated the consequences of killing David. That is, that Saul would be killing, excuse me, shedding innocent blood. Jonathan did not close his defense of his friend with a threat. Instead, he posed a question, giving Saul an opportunity to make a wise choice. And lastly, he did not hesitate to defend his friend. Instead, he was willing to risk his life, not fearing his father's anger. I just thought that in these two little verses, there was just so much there, because when we Um, are willing to confront someone, and sometimes that is necessary. It's so helpful to have a pattern. And I thought this would be something interesting to look back on and um, to really pray and ask God for wisdom to help us when confrontation is the responsible thing to do. Next, the nude prophet. One of these... um, lessons intriguing parts to me was trying to understand the different usages of the word prophesy, prophesy if you look at chapter 18 verses 10 and 11 it says the next day an evil spirit from god came forcefully upon saul he was prophesying in his household was while david was playing the harp as he usually did saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it at david saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. He was prophesying, and he threw a spear at David. That didn't make sense to me. And the New American Standard, if you have that version, prophesied, translates prophesied there as he raved um, to help clarify the situation. But the word doesn't mean rave as in a wild or senseless outburst. It does mean to prophesy. And then in the next chapter, chapter 19, it's prophesy is used frequently, where David has fled to Samuel for help and encouragement. Saul repeatedly tries to apprehend David, but each time the Spirit of God comes upon Saul's messengers, and they too begin to prophesy. Totally exasperated, Saul sets up to get David himself, but the Spirit of God comes on him, and Saul prophesies. So what does it mean to prophesy? According to Webster, prophesy is to declare something by divine guidance. Or the word prophecy, to, to speak under the influence of the Holy Spirit. However, in the first passage, we know that Saul was not under the influence of the Holy Spirit, but an evil spirit. So in that case, when Saul prophesied, the words were evil and came from Satan. In the second passage, when Saul prophesied, it shows that even Saul's murderous thoughts were pushed aside, and the Holy Spirit compelled him to speak for God, and he probably praised and worshipped God in spite of himself. Now, didn't you laugh when you read that it says that Saul prophesied nude all day and all night? I did. I wasn't quite sure how to address this section of the lesson. So for help, I consulted my file on nude profits. Karen has all kinds of interesting files with maps and globes and charts and things, but I have a file on nude profits. And look what I found. An article here on the bottom that says, Naked Preacher Bears Soul, pleads Guilty and Leaves Town. held on to this article for years. I knew it would come in handy someday. And today is the day. I'm going to read you a couple excerpts from this article. Um, Naked Preacher. A preacher who crashed a carload of naked passengers into a tree pleaded guilty Wednesday and was allowed to leave town. The magistrate asked why Rodriguez and the others left their clothes in a pilgrimage from Texas, that ended Thursday with a 90-mile-an-hour chase through Vinton. I don't know what possessed you to do what you did, but I'm relying on the statement you were told to do so by some higher being. Rodriguez told the police that God had told them to leave Texas and later to leave all their clothes behind. He believed he had a vision from God to let him know that the judgment day was at hand and they had to go to Florida to become evangelists to attract such interesting people, doesn't it? And I bet you didn't even know that there were still nude prophets. I think Saul was nude to show how God had humbled him. I think the guy in the article was nude because he was nuts. And finally, we'll close by just taking a minute to look at Psalm 59. David was surrounded by trouble and danger, but his faith in the Lord was secure. He did not let his emotions and fears cloud his view of God. God did not quickly resolve this problem with Saul. It lingered on and on. But during that time, God was teaching David that God was utterly reliable and that David could find hope and joy and peace despite his situation. Some of you are burdened by illness, by the loss of a loved one, a fragile marriage, problems with your children, or whatever. Remember that for a believer, having courage does not mean the absence of fear. It means trusting God in spite of our fears and anxieties. Psalm 59, verses 16 and 17. But as for me, I shall sing of your strength. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning, for you have been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praise to you, for God is my stronghold, the God who shows me loving kindness. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for these chapters and these lessons on Jonathan and David and their beautiful friendship, on wise ways to confront others. On watching that jealousy appear in our lives. And on the important lesson that we can trust you, that you are totally reliable, Lord, no matter what difficult situation we're going through. Father, continue to teach us. We ask this in my name. Amen. And now I'd be happy to take your questions. But if you have a question... <laughs> I would try to answer. No questions. (laughs) Thank you very much, ladies.